0: Student debt is one of the most popularly discussed and most misunderstood topics in American politics and economics today. In his paper, Redesigning Education Finance, how student loans outgrew the debt paradigm, incoming Fordham law professor John Brooks outlines the history of the college financing infrastructure in the United States, as well as its evolution. In this interview with c Priest John Crescenzo, Brooks explains the current problems with education financing and suggests alternate paths forward to pay for college. That's coming up on the Consortium for Policy, Research and Education's Research Minutes Student Debt Podcast Series.
1: Hi, welcome to Research Minutes. I'm John Crescenzo. I'm here with Professor Brooks. First, to get some history here. Your paper points out that around 10% of Americans went to college by World War II, but that number dramatically rises with the GI Bill, and then again with the National Defense Act in the late 1950s. Can you give us some background and history on this? What did these bills intend to do?
2: Yeah, they were both motivated very much coming out of World War II and the experience of fighting that war, and in particular, Finding that there was a lack of literacy uh, among a lot of the soldiers, and wanting to increase the capacity and ability of of soldiers and just people generally through through education, and then in in the years after World War II, also a real sensitivity to the Sputnik and the space race and the battle of the Soviet Union and that kind of thing, so that both uh, the GI Bill and and the National Defense Education Act were very motivated on. Uh, education for citizenry with an eye toward national defense. And another aspect of the GI bill, I should say that's really important is is demobilizing, right Having a large number of, of, of young men coming back from war and being sort of all at once and needing something to needing something to do and needing something to to make them um, uh, productive members of civil society again. So both of those were really uh, with that in mind, both of these bills, uh, were uh, the beginnings of the modern investment in higher education from the federal government. That, the history of that goes well back to the 19th century. But these were the
1: beginnings of the, the current era that we're in now. Then Congress passes the Higher Education Act of 1965, creating the Guaranteed Student Loan. What kind of foundation did the Higher Education Act lay for the student finance landscape we see today?
2: Yeah, so there's an interesting progression here. You know, we talked about the GI Bill and and the National Defense Education Act. GI Bill was like direct grants uh, mostly. I mean, simplifying a lot, but it's mostly paying directly for college. National Defense Education Act introduced loans, but the loans were really um, designed to get the schools to do the bulk of the lending. They were they were more incentives to try to get the schools themselves to provide ways to help finance higher education. Uh, But with the Higher Education Act, we we see a flip, and we see a flip in a couple of ways. One is that it was to promote education in its own right and for everybody, so not just for veterans, not just for uh, national defense purposes or scientific purposes, but really just recognizing that higher education was a good thing generally and really wanting to expand that. So it had a different set of goals in that sense, and I think that's an important uh, aspect of it. but the flip side and, and somewhat ironic part of that is that because it didn't have these very um, favored and, and specifically strategic goals or that, and that it was not aimed at favored groups like veterans made it harder to do the kind of financing that we saw in the GI bill, doing direct grants for everybody to go to college is a much harder sell politically than saying you know for veterans and so on. So what, you, what we saw then was the creation of the, the Federal Student Loan Program. It's called the Guaranteed Student Loan Program back then, but it really is, is the predecessor of what we're still uh, working with, this Federal Student Loan Program. And what they realized is that if they structured the, the, the funding for higher education as guaranteed and subsidized private loans, it was a way to get a lot of money into the system, a way to, get, to, to help pay for students to go to college, but to have it in a way that didn't look like direct government spending. So it was a way to hide the degree of spending, keep it off budget, involve private lenders to give it the appearance of private enterprise, even though the loans were subsidized and
1: guaranteed
2: by the federal government.
1: That's a great point. However, originally, the Higher Education Act was modeled after the GI Bill with direct grants going to students. But then this political fight emerges and direct grants get scrapped.
2: Yeah. I mean, there was this battle about, you know, could we do tax credits? Should we do direct fund? You know, how do we do this? And um, and and this was kind of in the face, because by the time you get to 1965, you start to see, see some pushback. I mean, it's still this kind of great society, but it's there's starting to be more of a sense of, yeah, just sensitivity to big government spending programs. Um, and I think this is you know, one of the one of the early signs of where the politics is going to go for the next,
1: you know, 20 or 30 years. Then in the 90s, we see changes again to the student loan system and the growth of the direct loan program. So, you know, the volume of loans, you know, skyrocket and thus loans become big business. Uh, then comes the 2008 financial crisis and the student loan market is in shambles, pretty much like every facet of the American economy. Uh, we pass the student Aid and Fiscal Fiscal Responsibility Act and that ends the fiction of private lending as your paper puts it. And so the landscape of student financing is changed once again. So can you give us some background on this, you know, what was the government's response and what happens to private student lenders in the wake of this crisis?
2: Yeah, so so from the you know 60s into the 90s it was uh the lending was all in the form of these guaranteed private loans. So the sources of capital and the, the lenders uh, you know technically were banks and private financial institutions, but they were guaranteed loans so that if if somebody defaulted or didn't pay the government would pick up the the cost and then they were also subsidized at the interest level so that You know, that they were going to be sure to make a a sufficient profit essentially. So, so charge the students relatively low interest and then, and then, and then the government would, would pay on top of that. So, it was a form of basically free money for a lot of the lenders. They took no risk and they got, uh, you know, a pretty, pretty generous uh, payout. And this was done partly for some complicated budget accounting reasons that made this type of program have almost no real effect on the government's bottom line. What happened in the 90s is that they changed the ac- accounting rules so that that same generous treatment of guaranteed private loans was then going to apply to direct loans by the federal government. So this is what doesn't just student loans, but also you know loans from the Department of Agriculture and Small Business Association and all that. Those loans were also treated as if they really didn't actually cost the government much money. They only sort of the only cost on the, on the government's uh, budget was if the loans uh, you know, weren't paid, paid back or, or, or otherwise they didn't collect what they hoped to collect. So it's a complicated story there um, that's probably not worth going into a lot of detail, but you see a, an almost immediate change, which is now the government in the 90s says, hey, we can do start doing loans ourselves. There's no budget real budget cost to that. So let's start doing our own direct loans. So that's the setup um, in the 90s. You start to see the government start to, start to lend the money itself. And so by the time you get to 2008, where things blow up and these guys are, have lost a lot of money, um, and not only that, but we're coming off a couple of years uh, of, of a lot of scandal. OK, so there's this free money for banks through the Guaranteed Student Loan Program. There's a lot of profit for the banks and also a lot of scandal because there are a lot of, doing, there are a lot of shady deals between lenders and, and schools, for example, to push kids into, into certain loans and so on. So when, the, when everything hits the fan in 2008, these guys need a bailout like everything else, but the government's much less, feeling much less generous when they're just dealing with a lot of news about all the shady dealings as well. So maybe somewhat less appetite than for bank-style uh, bailouts. Now, now the education department did buy up a lot of their debt, just as they did for other financial institutions. So there was that. But more importantly, they said, you know what? We don't need to do this anymore. We've got, we've got direct lending. We don't need to give these guys free money when they're just going to behave badly and then require a bailout when things go badly. So they basically just said, forget it. We're done. They wiped out subsidized private lending. They fully nationalized the student loan program. No more private lenders through the federal student loan program. Private student loans exist, but they're just like you go to a bank and ask for money. It's not through the student loan program. And because the subsidies had been so generous to the banks, doing this actually raised money. It, they raised revenue by cutting out the um, private lenders and just doing the, uh, lending the money themselves. And that money was used in two important ways. So SAFRA, the Student Aid and Fiscal Responsibility Act you mentioned, was not actually a standalone bill, but was passed through the Obamacare reconciliation bill in 2010. Mm -hmm. And so the revenue that was uh, raised from nationalizing the student loan program was partly used to pay for Obamacare, was part of what kept kept Obamacare from raising the deficit for, for budget scoring purposes. And then some of the money was also used to expand Pell Grants. But the end result is no more private lenders in the Federal uh, student loan program and the government actually, you know, saving money by bringing everything in in house. The federal, the the private lenders still exist because they they still have loans, old loans that they might they might still have. They sold a lot of them to to the education department, but not all of them. And then many of them continue to exist as servicers for the direct uh, government loans, but they don't actually make any new loans themselves through the federal student
1: loan program. That's, that's an excellent point. And uh, yeah, and I don't think a lot of people know this, which is like the government effectively nationalizes the system, as you point out, and student lenders are turned into student loan servicers.
2: That was a, basically a political deal that it was like, it would be too painful to completely put all these guys out of business, I guess. So they said, well, we'll, we'll sort of artificially give you this business of servicing the loans. And it's kind of weird because in, in like a, for like mortgage lending or something like that, if you have a loan servicer, they're actually collecting the payments and bearing some risk if somebody doesn't pay their mortgage. With the student loan servicing, the checks all go directly to the Department of Education. The loan servicers have no skin in the game at all. They're really just hired to like manage a call center. Uh, they they do very little else. And as a result, it gets, it's really kind of messed up because they just they're paid in a particular way and their incentives are based on those contracts. And if the incentives are, for example, not to spend the time to get somebody into an income driven repayment program, then they might not do it. And so we gave these this loan servicers this business partly to like not completely wipe them out, but it's ended up being. I think, one of the biggest sources of the continuing problems in the student loan uh, program.
1: Yeah. And at the same time, we made major changes to the income-based payment program. Can you talk about that?
2: Yeah. So this has also happened in Safra to a degree. It actually goes back further than that. Maybe I should say what these programs are first. So the income-driven repayment programs are, there's there's a bunch of them, kind of an alphabet soup of them, but broad strokes, they say you can opt into paying, instead of just the normal loan payment, you can instead pay a percentage of your income and your discretionary income. So pay 10% of your income after some exemption for uh, normal expenses. Do that for, say, 20 years. And after 20 years, any remaining balance is forgiven. So that's the basic structure. Pay a percentage of your income for a, for a fixed number of years. The first one of those began in the 90s. It wasn't designed very well. didn't have a lot of uptake. It expanded a little bit in the Bush administration, the end of the Bush administration. Uh, but then blew up really in 2010 in the same bill that nationalized the student loan program. Now, the nationalization of the student loan program was, a, was very big news, um, and there's, there were some, some battles over that, as you can imagine. The expansion of income-driven repayment was barely talked about at all, but it ended up being, in some ways, just as momentous. And the expansion was, in particular, making some of the terms a little more generous so that they were actually appealing to students. So that began around 2010, and then through legislation, And then um, in the years following that, the Obama administration in particular used its regulatory powers to expand it even further. And so we're now at a situation where almost all loans can opt into one of these programs. Uh, They're almost always going to be a better deal than the standard loan uh, payment. And they're huge. I mean, right now, about half of all loans in repayment are in one of these plans. So it's about, you know, approaching $500 billion of uh, loans is in an income driven repayment program. It's about a third of borrowers, somewhat lower borrowers, because as you can imagine, people with higher loan balances are more likely to get into the, into the program, but it is increasingly not just like a sideline. It is, it is the story for how people are paying back their loans.
1: So, student loans have no underwriting accompanying them, a point you raised early on in the paper. Can you explain what this means and why this is the case and how student loans are different from other forms of debt?
2: Yeah, you know, one of the stories we tell in the paper, and we've sketched it out already here, is this change over time from something that's basically just a loan. Give you money, you pay it back to something where the loan is increasingly a vehicle for broader government investment in higher education, Um, more and more subsidization of the loans, expanding the availability of the loans, adding the income driven repayment programs and so on. And a core problem or kind of core market failure problem with the idea of student lending is that there's no assets. The student doesn't have any assets to lend against, right? Other than the human capital that they're developing through the education. And so there's no private lender would feel um, secure enough to, to lend the significant amount, amounts of money. Um, and that's what, that basically why we have government lending as the main source of funds for, 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 this, for student loans now. But it's also you know not feasible to do the sort of traditional measurement of risk that a, that a lender would do, what you know, what we call underwriting, where they sort of f- figure out what the the riskiness and sort of riskworthiness of this of this borrower is and and should they uh, how much should we lend and at what terms? Because as I was mentioning earlier, the loans now, the federal loan program is the vehicle for government investment in higher education generally, and the way in which we are trying to increase access to education, the very explicit policy decision is to make them available to everybody on the same terms, and without regard to collateral risk, anything like that, wealth, and so on. Every borrower gets the same terms, the interest rates and other terms of the loans are set by statute, they have no relationship to credit risk or anything else. Um, in fact, the interest rates are set basically for budget scoring reasons uh, and revenue raising reasons. The particular rates of interest were picked in order to make sure that the bills didn't have a high cost for you know budget purposes. And in fact, the highest interest loans, uh, which are the the plus loans that parents or grad students use, are are the least risky loans. So that so there's an inverse relationship between risk and uh, high interest rates, which is not what you would see in a normal situation. And it just underscores that the terms are not related to the riskiness of the loan. And all this is because this is, as I said, the student loan program is motivated largely by public purposes. It's It's a desire to get money into higher education, to expand access to education. It's an alternative to direct spending as we talked about historically this was this was the you know explicitly an alternative to, to just direct grants for uh, students and so you know we call them loans and we use structures like default and credit ratings and and wage garnishment if things go bad not to mention the moral language of debt you know you now you've borrowed money you owe something if you don't pay it back you're taking someone's money all these things are kind of the the legal and and cultural and moral institutions around debt. But when you're talking about something that is actually a vehicle for public spending and in which the normal considerations of why a loan is made or not made are, are completely put aside, there's a disconnect. And this is, I think, you know, there's a scholar, Jonathan uh, Glader, at Berkeley, who I think has made this point most explicitly. That he says we've designed the loan program with access and and funding of higher education in mind. We said basically anybody can have a loan for any reason, for any kind of higher ed, without regard to what they're going to use their higher education for, without regard to their potential future income. And that's and that's a on purpose, right? We want to make sure that people can have access to higher education for for good reasons. But then we turn right around and start blaming and punishing individuals if they can't personally bear the cost of that loan. So on the one hand, we have this policy of open access and wide availability. But if if somebody takes the government at their word and, and says, great, I will use that money for higher education, then, then, then the government turns right around and says, well, but if you don't pay it back on the following terms, we're going to mess up your credit rating or garnish your social security or disability payments as they do and so on. So we've created a system where students have unwittingly become personally liable for money that is actually used to fund the whole higher ed sector. And that is a uh, a source of of a lot of pain for a lot of borrowers.
1: Yeah. And I think your paper makes a really interesting point. It says, it's time to call federal student loans, but they really are a tuition grant plus an income surtax on students. Can you explain this a little bit and why you think this reframing is important? Yeah, so so we just talked about some of the the pain that comes from
2: treating these as if they're just like a loan from a bank or something rather than this than actually being just a choice of how to do public funding of higher education, but so then you'd have to say, well, are there any benefits to calling it a loan? Like, what, why, why do that, and and what would be the alternative? And what I would suggest, and what my co-author Adam Leviton and I suggest, is that when you've got a system with income-driven repayment, which again is pay a percentage of your income for a certain number of years, that's an obvious an, a, analogy to a tax system. Now, I'm a tax scholar originally. And so w- when I came at this, when I first heard about this, which by the way was, you know, way b- back in like 2011, 2012, when when no one knew what was going on. N- n- no one no one even knew this had passed and when I started talking about it, people didn't believe me or thought it was crazy that anybody could get this deal, but sure enough uh, that's that's where we are now. But when I look at that and you know, maybe I'm a, I'm a hammer looking for a nail, but I see government providing you know, a service and funding that service by taking a percentage of, of income, that sure looks like an income tax to me. And this is really not, this is not unusual, actually, in how the government does things. Obamacare, for example, has a very similar structure where they just say, okay, well, you, we're going to make you pay a, a percentage of your income pr- for your premiums. So the premiums through the uh, Obamacare exchanges are a, a function of, of income. Again, that looks like a lot like just paying an income tax to receive uh, health care. But, for reasons we talked about, kind of doing this sort of tax adjacent, right? Not doing it directly through the tax program where it shows up as higher taxes and higher spending, but but structuring a, a system that's a little bit outside of the core tax system. But it doesn't change the fact that that's still what's going on, that this is still the government spending money on higher education for students uh, and then demanding that they pay a percentage of their income for a certain amount of time. Now, you know, when you start talking about things like we should pay for higher education with a graduate tax or a tax on students, it it sounds it sounds harsh, and, and I and I don't disagree. Like, why why would we say that you should be taxed extra for for going to college? So, I, a couple of things to say about that briefly. The first is, as I try to make clear, we're already doing it. This is how the loan program already works. Um, so we're just kind of just calling it like it is. But secondly, as much as people don't like paying taxes, I would suggest, as I said earlier, that doing this as a loan program, it actually creates a lot of pain, and I think much more pain than it would be if people paid this as as a tax. Furthermore, most of the other countries that have similar sorts of student loan programs as this, government-supported tuition grants uh, paid for with a percentage of income, even if they call it a loan, they also do it largely through the, through the tax system. Um, and so what would that mean? Well, the key difference would be that instead of having to kind of go to your loan servicer and say, you know, okay, loan servicer, please ask the IRS what my income was last year. And then we'll run that through a formula to say what I should be paying the Department of Education, dealing with basically three three different agents, three different sort of institutions or agencies. You've got the private loan servicer, you got the IRS that has the income data, you got the education department that's actually collecting the payments. And all this depends on the servicer actually doing a good job. There's a lot easier way to do it, which is to say, well, if you're going to pay a percentage of your income, all of us do pay a percentage of our income every week to the IRS through payroll withholding. So you, you could institute this through the payroll withholding system where they say, well, this is this is what your income was this week. You owe 10% of your discretionary income to to uh, to the government to cover some of the cost of your education. Have the IRS collect it. They're pretty good at that. And you would simplify things a, a, a lot. You would cut out the need to deal with the servicing um, industry. You would cut out the need to self-select into the program. You would cut out the fact that Right now, the calculation of the loan payments depends on last year's income, because they need to you know, call the IRS and look up your tax return and, from last year. Uh, if payroll withholding would be able to do it in, based on exactly what you made in the last two weeks. And then also, if we throw out the baggage of debt, we can do other things, maybe more cleanly. Do we need to be charging interest? Do we need to be treating the cancellation of the student debt as uh, taxable income um, and a bunch of other things that people get find themselves in weird you know, cul-de-sacs when trying to think about this as uh, as just as if it were just a normal bank loan?
1: So what I find most interesting about your idea on using a tax to pay for higher education is that it addresses some of the counter arguments against uh, free or universal higher education Often we hear, you know, well, why should we subsidize someone who gets a business degree and makes a lot of money uh, versus someone who's going to be a teacher
2: yeah, that's really that's really important because higher education is extremely diverse and covers people who are getting small loans to go to community colleges, people who are getting large loans to go to predatory for private schools and some predatory not-for-profit schools, and people who are borrowing a ton to go to graduate school. And and these are not the same. So it turns out that some of the most distressed borrowers are people with relatively small loans because they either, they didn't graduate or they went to like a a predatory school. And that's where a lot of the defaults are are located. On the other side, some of the people, some of the people with the biggest loans are actually doing great because they got law and medical or, or business degrees. So this makes some of these Discussion is kind of complicated, particularly things like the you know just just the canceling student debt sort of universally um, as as is kind of the one of the big topics of discussion politically right now. It's complicated to kind of think of the equities, but I think one benefit of, of an income driven repayment program is it's saying you know what we're gonna we're not even going to think about kind of who deserves uh, a grant and who doesn't. Or anything like that. We'll just say, you know, what if you make a lot of money, then you pay back a lot of money. If you don't, then you don't. And that's the same sort of logic that drives the distributional justice of the tax system generally, which is just that you know, if you if you've done very well, then you you pay more, and if you and if you don't do as well, then then you don't. So we're we're basically saying you have to pay for your education as a function of how well you do after you graduate. And I think there's a strong like. Moral logic to that to me. Somebody might come from a lower income background, but if they go on to be a hedge fund manager, I don't know why the taxpayer needs to subsidize their education. And if you use income driven repayment to measure how much of their um, education they're going to have to pay for, I think you end up in a potentially fairer place. But by using people's income after they graduate, you can more closely tailor the subsidization of higher education to those who, who need it the most.
1: Yeah, and we also know from the data that the current system leads millions of borrowers into default, and we also know that when we, once we turn back on repayments, millions of borrowers are at risk of default. Can you talk about how you see the income-based repayment as a solution to the problem and some of the changes that we need to make in order to make that work?
2: Yeah, yeah, I mean, I will say just first briefly that there are a lot of people who probably have unfairly large uh, debts or unfairly large relative to their income. You mentioned earlier the people who maybe took out loans to go to predatory schools or, or things like that. And I think there is some room to think about some loan cancellation in that context. But even if we do that, loans don't go away. So a lot of people who are defaulting now are in situations where they took out loans for schools that weren't going to provide much value to them or, or perhaps they didn't graduate at all because they needed to, to work or take care of a, of a sick family member or, or what have you. And that's a problem. And we need, that needs to be addressed. Uh, Now, one of the ironies of the income driven repayment program is that it would probably stop defaults. Okay. Most, almost none of the defaults are people who are in income driven repayment programs. They're people who are in the standard loan payment programs. If they could get into an IDR plan, they would lower their payments because they have low income. But the problem is, is that if you've defaulted on your loans, uh, it's very difficult and even impossible to get into an uh, an income-driven repayment program. There, there, you you have to be have a loan in good standing, and so the people who most need the benefits of income-driven repayment, the people who most need to say because I have low income, I should have a low loan payment, aren't able to get into the program. And so, and so, there's this disconnect where the people who are in IDR are doing okay, and the pe- and the defaults are people who are who are outside of it. So that's perverse and should be fixed. How can you fix that? Well, one way would be just to make IDR the only plan. I don't see any good reason why we should have this this kind of standard 10-year loan amortization uh, type program. Just put everybody into an IDR plan automatically, have it be the only only way, Uh, which again, is by the way how other countries, especially the UK and Australia, and Australia in particular has had a pretty successful income-based repayment program for decades now. Just make it the only plan, and and then collect it through the tax system, so that there would you know be no no defaults because it would just get taken out of the paycheck. Now I, I should say here that a lot of borrower advocates hate this idea. Not all of them. Some some recognize the benefits, like I was describing, but some some are uh, very sensitive to this, particularly people who work in like legal clinics for, for low-income people and things like that, because they're seeing people who are in a su- significant amount of financial distress. And one of the tools that you have in that, in that situation is the ability to just stop paying. So that is a, a sort of an important self-help option for people in financial distress, that if they need the money to pay their rent or to buy food, they can choose to just not make a loan payment. Now they go into default, and it can be bad long-term financial consequences of that. But but in the moment, that can be the best option. And so, one bit of resistance that I just want to give voice to: student loan payment through the tax system is taking away that ability that you can't kind of opt out the way you might be able to opt out from just writing a, a, a loan payment check. I guess though, I would say a couple things in response to that. One is that if you have low income the IDR payment's going to be zero. So if you're truly in financial distress, there's no problem. You're not going to have a payment anyway. And that's better than than choosing not to pay a payment that that you owed. In both cases, it's zero, but one of them is under the terms of the loan and one is is pushing you into default. So that's one response. The other response is that if the terms of IDR are still unaffordable, and as I said, mostly it's 10% of your discretionary income, discretionary income is an exemption amount that is calculated as 150% of uh, of the relevant federal poverty level. So you don't pay anything on your loan until you start earning more than that. And then you pay for 20 years with forgiveness after that. If we need to adjust those terms to make it so that it's always going to be affordable, maybe the exemption amount is higher, maybe the percentage of income should be lower or maybe be graduated. Pay a lower percentage at lower income levels and a higher percentage at higher income levels, then we need to figure that out. If automatic payment through the withholding system creates problems uh, because of affordability, we need to fix the affordability, not so much the automatic payment part. And by the way, the education department is in a rulemaking process right now to create yet another income-driven repayment program. I have issues with complicating the landscape with yet another uh, program with. Complicated terms that are difficult to distinguish for the average borrower, but one of the things that's on the table is to raise that exemption amount um, even higher.
1: Yeah, and I know this heads into complicated legal terrain when it comes to the education department. Um, but when it comes to uh, IDR, what do we know about you know the terms of forgiveness and the ability to automatically incorporate students into the IDR program?
2: They have. A lot of power to adjust the terms. If they want to change the percentage of income that they charge, if they want to change the exemption amount, if they want to change the length of time that somebody would pay before any remaining balance is forgiven, there are you know, provisions of the Higher Education Act give them a lot of authority. They basically say, figure you know, figure it out. Pick you know, pick some percentage for some period of time, and you can do it. I don't have an answer on whether the education department could make IDR the only uh, payment plan for everybody. I suspect that that would be tougher based on what I am sort of remembering for the particular provisions of the higher education act, but it's, but it's a good question, but going that far might, might require uh, legislation.
1: Yeah. And I know you've kind of already touched on this, but can you talk about how private actors, and interest in the system hold us back from creating an equitable and fair system of student loan finance?
2: A lot of the institutional and administrative features of the student loan program were created in a world of subsidized private lending. The choosing the interest rates, the methods of applying for the loans, the ways in which people pay back the loans, uh, you know, all of the FAFSA, all this stuff came out of a world where it was all about managing this, this subsidized private loan program. And I think now that it's come in house, a lot of things have changed, but we still have a lot of the features of the, of the old program. If you were just doing direct income-based loans from day one, you, you, you wouldn't have the system that we, that we have. And I think that one of the clearest examples of that is the loan servicing side of this, that we have these private loan servicers under contract with the education department who do nothing but help you, you know, answer questions or apply for different programs or go into forbearance or tell you if you're in default and that, and that sort of thing. As I said, they're kind of, in a way, just glorified call centers. They're paid on a per borrower basis slightly differently depending on you know the standing of the loan, but it's like a couple bucks a month per borrower or something like that. So there's no real incentive for them to spend much time uh, with any given borrower. And in some cases, getting you into particular types of program might actually even move you to be serviced by somebody else. This is especially true for the public service loan forgiveness program. So their incentives are really off And the only reason they exist is because they're this weird lump legacy remnant of the private lenders. And if we were to reform the system more fully to get them out of the picture, I think it would deal with a lot of the problems that people are facing today in terms of not getting into the right payment program, having trouble getting into IDR, not having other kinds of rights effectuated, like whether they qualify for
1: public service loan forgiveness and so on. Going back to World War II and the Cold War and Sputnik, uh, these events created demand in the US for higher education, and the government laid the groundwork for people to go to college and university. You have written about how higher education is more essential today just outside of these events, yet, we are moving in the opposite direction of a universal higher education system. Can you talk about that?
2: Yeah, I think higher education is incredibly important. I think it's increasingly uh, required, even. I've argued in in writing and other places that in a sort of obvious way, this is needed because we just there's more to know. If you think about what a an average, I don't know, a teacher or or a nurse or any sort of profession, um, or even and even and even non-professional, you know, more working class jobs require a degree of technology know-how and and so on. The volume of things that we expect somebody to know and have familiarity with is, is ever increasing. So, and, and you see, the, the, it's no surprise then that more and more people are going to college or, or seeing it as important. That's not so much a response to a crisis though. That's just an ongoing general need, which is always kind of there. My concern is that even with that sort of obvious need, even with the obvious connection to growth and innovation, even... In the United States, where the higher education industry is one of our most successful products, you know, our our higher education system is the envy of the world. It's a major export industry. We have tons of foreign students who want to take advantage of, of what we're offering. And it's continued to produce, you know, help to produce some of the growth that we've seen in this country. Even with all that, We see we have the political debate that we have right right now, which is increasingly kind of framed as students versus others, you know, students versus taxpayers, students versus what what have you. And this is on the heels of decades of defunding of higher education, which I think shows to me that the political system has trouble seeing the long-term value of investing in higher education. And that troubles me it was an easier sell during the Cold War uh, perhaps. Uh, I'm not sure what the, what the equivalent is now. Maybe we're on the, maybe we're on the verge of, of, a, of a new Cold War, but it doesn't seem like if we are, it doesn't seem like one that's gonna be fought in terms of scientific innovation, for example. So I, I'm a little discouraged, I gotta say. It's one reason why I am maybe more supportive of loan-based tuition because I am deeply skeptical of the political system's ability to support an alternative like free college or, or more direct spending. The trend is, seems to be in the other direction. And one thing I wonder is as some states have continued to try to gut their public higher education systems while others are, are investing in them, are we going to see more of a split among the states in that sense? And where does that go? I doubt, I'm not sure. I think it will have real effects on economic growth in different states, for example, but I'm but I'm not sure it would be so direct as to have a direct impact on state politics.
1: Yeah. And that's not even to mention that we face, you know, just two major crises, you know, a pandemic and climate change where we need more investment in higher ed to address these crises. Um, And as you mentioned, we're caught in these political arguments
2: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's complicated because higher education has this both public and private good aspect to it, where Mm -hmm. we are absolutely investing in a resource that our country will continue to draw upon in the same way that you would be, you know, investing in infrastructure or basic scientific research or whatever, you know, what have you, these are all things that are core investments into the well-being of the, of the state. But at the same time, the individuals who get the higher education are also able to extract a lot of that benefit for themselves. And so it, it's complicated. I mean, you could say we need to invest more in higher education because that's where the solutions to climate change, that's how we're going to bring, you know, deal with social mobility. That's where the new entrepreneurial businesses and innovations are going to come from. That's where new generations of people working in social justice, or, you know, social services, I mean, whatever you want to talk about it, like that's where the sort of good things will grow out of. But it's too easy to think of higher ed- education financing as like, why should I give a lot of money to somebody who's just going to be a lawyer or, you know, or a plastic surgeon or something like that, right? So it has both aspects and that makes what drives some of the political challenges. Now, I would go back to say that one of the things that I think is is an advantage of something like the income-driven repayment programs is that it can hit both those aspects by basing it on income. If someone goes to school, gets a higher education, and then goes into a relatively low-paying job that has public service elements to it, they're going to pay less. There will be more taxpayer subsidization of that person's higher education. If they go to school and become a, a lawyer or, or a hedge fund manager, not so much they're going to they're gonna have to pay all of their edu- higher education costs and maybe more so with income driven repayment program, you have baked into it an estimate of that split between the private benefit and the public benefit. measuring the the amount of subsidization for a student based on their future income does a reasonably good job of capturing
1: some of that d- differentiation. Is there anything else we didn't address that you would wanna add? I guess I would add maybe a final
2: note about this kind of work generally, which is that like, this is a big deal. Higher education and higher education funding, it's a its a big part of the economy. It's a major part of government activity. Through the student loan program, we distribute about $100 billion a year into the higher education system. That's bigger than the, than the, than the budget of most agencies. And you know, the role of higher education in the economy and in society is, is clear. This is also a complicated area of law and policy. And so I just would kind of urge people to, to you know, keep thinking hard about it. A lot of people are certainly thinking about issues like student debt cancellation and so on, but there's a lot of other stuff here that is an incredibly you know, important object of study and important object of, of policy and, and legal analysis because you know these are these are big questions that it's important to try to get right.
1: Well Professor Brooks, thank you for coming on today. Sure, and thank you for having
2: me.
0: John Brooks is currently professor of law at Georgetown University, but will be joining the law faculty at Fordham University in September. His paper with Adam Levitin, Redesigning Education Finance, How Student Loans Outgrew the Debt Paradigm is available online at the Georgetown Law Journal and is linked below. This podcast is part of the Consortium for Policy Research and Education student debt podcast series and can be found at CPRE Hub on Twitter. CPRE on YouTube, online at cpre.org, and find us by searching for Research Minutes wherever you get your podcasts.